Thanks for joining us again. This is Amusings. I am Leslie. I'm Rachel. And we are ready to discuss some of the fantastic, beautiful, challenging, awkward, creative, and inspiring things that come from the hospitality industry, entertainment industry, and those surrounding. All right, Adria, we are ready. All right. So well said, Leslie, uh, especially the awkward part, because we seem to do that exceptionally well. Hello, everybody. Welcome. So I've got another really entertaining and fantastic guest for you. This individual has been involved in a whole variety of things, dating way back to an early career as a, a singer of some renown with a group. She's also been presented with the Woman of the Year Award for a combo of her team's creative achievements, which included five New York Film Festival trophies, in addition to her personal volunteer work, which is just absolutely amazing. And as she has shared, one of her favorite things is that she now gets to work with her son. So she feels that's one of her greatest achievements. And she just landed on the Los Angeles Business Journal's top 10 of women-owned businesses. Number three, just after Redken and Mrs. Gooch's grocery store, which became Whole Foods. So without further ado, I'd like to bring on uh, one of my favorite people in the entire world, Norma Lynn Cutler. Are you here, Norma Lynn? Where are you? Where's your lovely face? They are very excited to learn all about who Norma Lynn Cutler is, what she's all about, what zany, crazy, wonderful things she's up to and has done in her past. And why don't you start off by just giving us sort of the elevator, long elevator, because I know you've got a lot going on, so it's multiple floors here, but the elevator pitch on kind of who you are and how you got to be the brilliant human being you are today. Well, maybe it's because I majored in physics in college. Maybe it was for three months. I was a nun. Those, <laughs> those things could have contributed either to my insanity or to my intellect. We'll never know until the autopsy. But in any case, <laughs> I started my business at, when I was 26 and I'd never worked for a marketing firm, but I thought I can do that because I had worked with them, worked with agencies as the client and built it up to where I was able to sell it. I was the number three in the top 10 women-owned businesses in Los Angeles for that particular year, which the two ahead of me were Redkin, which they were like mega bucks. But unlike me, they weren't a hundred percent woman-owned. Yeah. I was the only company in the top 10 that was exclusively owned by women. Started very heavily in the real estate field and did a lot of residential and a lot of master plan communities. And I uh, then sold my agency. And after six months of my non-compete, I reformed myself as Cutler Enterprises and decided to do more interesting things. I started to do film, music, automotive, and resorts. I felt like every different silo that I would jump into, hopefully that would inform the narrow silo that I had been in and actually bring all of them a richer product. And it did work out that way. I'm happy to say it was a crapshoot, but it worked. It played. And it, when COVID hit, I basically obviously had to lay people off. Interestingly, not necessarily coincidentally, I fell in 2021, broke my arm in six places. So I didn't feel like the urge to get back on the horse. I'm still working, but just not as frenetically as I used to, because I'm taking time not to smell the roses, but to 
take a look around the world. I'm going to be traveling a little bit more. In June, I went to Japan and Korea. Oh, fantastic. I'd rather work with people I love now and doing things that I love as opposed to taking big assignments. So that was a skyscraper elevator pitch. Sorry about that. I love how you just said, I can do that, and then went and did it. I think that's awesome, because not many people do that. Well, yeah, yeah. I have physics, four years of Latin, entering the convent right out of high school. That was a unique choice, and it all went to hell in a handbasket. I did everything to make ends meet. I went from greasing coils to working in a couture house, to then working for a developer, and then starting my own business. It was just like, boom, boom, boom. Opportunity, I guess, presents depending on how you choose to view the world. Well, that's right. I felt after I became an editor of a real estate-based magazine, and a lot of people started asking me to write their stuff. So I thought, gee, I could do it. And when my freelance was making more money than my job, I thought, geez, what is up with this? I mean, how to run a business? I had no clue. My dad worked for the post office. My mother was a bookkeeper. I just threw down. That's all. And I just said, I'm tired of depending on the vagaries of the economy and other people's decisions to have my fate determined for me. So that's why I decided to do it alone. Anybody can do it. That's that's awesome. The key is you decided and you just went. That's part of it. Where There's a lot of folks that everybody struggles with that decision process or just that leap. Standing on the cliff and not leaping is, can be right. tough. Well, I mean, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. The thing is, yep. what also propelled me was my parents thought it was insane and that I'd never make it. Okay. And I would have died in the street all bloody before that was going to happen. <laughs> before the satisfaction. Of- That's well, right. Something, there, there is something to be said about trying to prove other people wrong. I mean, there is that side of us that wants to just dig the heels in and go, no, I can do this. I will do this. I'm going to show you I am right, even if it means I'm not. Yeah. I mean, I will be right for at least long enough to prove it to you. And then I may give up. But of course, it didn't go that way. And once I got into it, I fell in love with the business that I had created. And I really didn't expect it. You know, I felt it was going to be a grind. And it was certainly the first couple of years were hellish. In fact, part of the leap that I took left me with not necessarily enough funds to take care of my son sometimes. And in those times, I took a a graveyard shift at a medical answering service and smuggled him in after everybody left. And so that meant I was up from 11 to 7. Then I take him home, get him ready for school, drop him off at school and start all over again. Wow, that's amazing. I'm curious too about when you build something and you come up against another decision of to sell, what was that like? Well, it's your baby. Right. (laughs) And that's why... If I'm going to sell my baby, I'm going to get a good price for my baby. Right. Um, And what was interesting, all of the agencies that wanted uh, to buy my firm wanted me to come with it. Okay. And so in a way, I didn't feel like I was abandoning 
I had at that point probably 50 people working for me. They allowed me to handpick five people that I would bring with me. So my family, so to speak, was staying intact at least for the six months. Mm-hmm. And that was extremely important to me because I wanted to at least curate some of my experience in this new world. Uh, and I found out something that's not very flattering about myself. I don't like taking orders from anyone. (laughs) (laughs) After six months of that, I said, okay, it's been fun. I'm out of here. And they said, that's fine. You can keep the money we paid you for the business and you can go do your thing. So I did. But that's relationship building too, right? I mean, you you had to have cultivated a relationship with the buyers in order to be to move forward. And I think that that holds true, at least from my experience and having known you for, I don't know how many years, but having known you, that you are really good at reading people and creating relationships. And I think also your straightforward approach, while maybe it's not to everybody's preference. That's really, I think that's really a hallmark for you. I think that's really why People want to know you and want to do business with you and want to develop projects and so on and so forth. They bring you into things because you do have that capacity. Well, it's not that I'm, I'm definitely full of nonsense, but when it comes to providing a credible and productive product for my client, the nonsense goes away and you keep your eye on, on the ball at that point. If everybody wins at the end of the day, then people like to stay with people they won with. And uh, one of them, and actually it should have been one of my things that I told you were my high points. I was hired by Newhall Land and Farming to market the community of Valencia. Mm. And at that time, nobody had an idea where the heck it was. And it would always say, well, we're close to Six Flags Magic Mountain. And I said, my objective is going to be the day that this happens, I'll know I survived and did it right, that when Six Flags say as where they are, they say near Valencia instead of the reverse. And it happened in a People magazine, and I blew it up on a big board, (laughs) ran through the halls of New Orleans Farming and said, we finally made it. It was an article on something, but it talked about Magic Mountain, and it said, near Valencia. And I thought, okay, now we have created the credibility of this place so that it's got enough gravitas that people are taking it seriously as a place. And at that point, their revenue soared and they made it to the New York Stock Exchange and all kinds of wonderful things. Now that you are picking and choosing, you're in a place where you can sort of pick and choose your projects and your people that you want to surround yourself with. Um, I know you've gotten very involved in volunteerism in certain capacities, and I, I think it'd be really interesting to learn more about what you're doing there. I started in volunteerism after I got divorced because I would have some weekends free because my son would be with him. I, I started with a thing called Partners, It came through the uh, Los Angeles District Attorney's Office, and it was pairing extremely difficult convicted children felons with mentors outside of that. After that program, I went to work at a hospital for kids that were recovering alcoholics 
and drug addicts, teaching them living skills and how to get on with their parents. If they don't have to agree with their parents, but if they want a roof over their head and food in their mouth and a warm bed to sleep in, they have to learn how to adapt and how to get along. And that's something that will help them. I do contests where kids can make money like chalk art and performance things and costumes and whatnot. I shouldn't say that I'm volunteering doing these events in these underserved communities because they're paying me something, but basically I gave all the money back. And I think one of the most heartbreaking or heartrending moments was I recently did one in lower class area of Santa Ana. It was just a summer beach party. And this one kid was looking, standing, looking bored. And I said, are you an artist? He said, yeah, but this is a little kid thing. No, teenagers are welcome. I said, well, it's worth 50 bucks to you. So he took the whole day, he and his friend, and came up with something just stunning. And I gave him $50. And I said, what are you going to do? Go and buy a skateboard? Or what's your pleasure? And he goes, my mom had trouble making the rent. I'm going to give it to her. And this was a street kid. Borderline could be gangbanger down the road. And I thought, okay, this is what happens. We give kids hope. And we give them something to aspire to. And you go home and you feel so much better. So I've launched a literacy program called Egghead. And basically, we put paper mache, Humpty Dumpty like eggheads, kind faces on college students. I brought like 200 books. They were gone in an hour and a half. And mm-hmm. I said, I don't want you to give the books out willy nilly. I want you to create a desire in them to read. Mm-hmm. Think of the places you'll go, Dr. Seuss, blah, blah. And they were kids holding their books as as if they'd gotten the Nobel Prize. So that's one of my missions is literacy in these underserved communities. I also volunteer at the animal shelter and at the Cancer Society. The Cancer Society story is my very, very best friend who died seven years ago. That was her favorite thing to do. And I said, I would take over her shift in her absence now that she's passed. So I'm there every week. And some people actually come in just to see me, to see what I'm wearing. Or (laughs) there's this woman who comes in who's 91 and she said, you're my happy place. (laughs) (laughs) You need to get a life. But things that make other people feel good make me feel good. I appreciate after divorce, there's time on your hands. So filling time. And I think that's what one of the themes as we're getting to know you more is to understand capacities and that it's not meant to shrink, but to fill. It can get bigger and bigger and bigger. What do you think has been the continuity of volunteerism for you? Why you continue to seek out maybe this thing, this project ends, going and doing another thing? What is your motivation to stay engaged in volunteerism? Well, uh, you used a word, engagement's a part of it. Yeah. Uh, It keeps me connected. I live alone with my two dogs, but I have tons of friends. The thing that sounds gratuitous, but it's what I will say, is that I ended up having a life I never dreamed possible beyond my wildest dreams. And yes, I was complicit in creating that life, but there were so many wonderful things that were given to me along the way 
that I feel it's only fair to let other people know how wonderful life can be. And, you know, and it sounds Pollyannish, believe me, I've had illness, I've had heartbreak, I've had all the terrible things that everybody has. And there were times when I literally did pull the covers over my head and start sucking my thumb. I mean, you can't get away from those moments and you have to forgive yourself, but you have to allow yourself to get through that. But the thing is, I love people and I learn from everyone I feel that I meet. You know, some of them are really, really, especially this woman who's like 90 some odd years old. And she lives about two miles away from the Cancer Society. She is in a wheelchair and she wheels the whole way. Wow. It's two miles down and two miles back. That's how important it is to her. So how can I make it less important for me? I feel so fulfilled. I'm getting more than I'm giving, truly. Mm -hmm. Watching people transition from being lonely to not lonely, from having no money to having little money, to not reading to reading. What could be bad about that? Who wouldn't want to be part of that? I don't know. I think that's probably encouraging for what we would think our listeners to hear that, hey, you may have a busy schedule, but we've got to find ways to fit it in. I think it's an essential part of survival. My friend that passed away, she was 87. And the day that she passed away was her day at the cancer store, but she started it off with a Pilates class and she ended it with going to happy hour with her friends, came home, took her bra off, turned on Jeopardy and died. When the coroner came in and he goes, you know, if there's such a thing as good death, this woman had it. <laughs> I can see she has a smile on her face, whatever. And, you know, that's it. And she would go to the dog park and she would lend money to people. And she didn't have a lot herself, but she would help people out. It is about engagement. It is about seeing the world through other people's eyes. I think people are a value proposition, right? They are. It's, they are. It's something that you either, and I almost feel like sometimes you either get it or you don't get it. There's not a lot of people that waffle in between, but there are those people that really relish that human connectivity on multiple levels, not just their same socioeconomic pathway, but everybody and appreciate people for who they are and what they bring to the table. So anybody who listens to this, if you don't like people, don't listen to any of it, but if you like people, Boy, volunteering and being out there is certainly the way to go. And I think maybe it's been made a little bit too comfortable to say the answer is no, I don't like people because I'm an introvert or I'm these many things that we've been diagnosed and boxed ourselves into. I really believe at the end of the day, we all like people because we're one too, uh, first of all. And I think volunteerism is a really great excuse to be somewhere to get to know people, unlike some other like networking events or things that go on at your office parties, et cetera. This is a different kind of way to just engage other humans. And so even if you might not say to yourself or say out loud that you like people, you do, let's just try. You're on the other side of a screen here. You're not right in front of me, but I can feel your warmth radiating through the screen and what an incredible story and inspiring spirit you have. I can barely do 10,000 steps in a day and you're doing all of this. It's definitely making me think, oh yeah, like I need to 
get out there and, and give back because I can see how you're just so fulfilled by it. I, I am. And, you know, and actually I parlayed some of the volunteerism into my business. I was hired by Bentley to do a rollout of their GT Coupe and for their Christmas rollout. I hired a children's choir, dressed them as angels, and they sang, let there be peace in the world and let it begin with me. And I gave money to them, which went to their families. But also, there wasn't a dry eye at this event. And everybody to this day still talks about, I'm at an automotive event, and there are children singing in angel costumes. What up? You know, I may do some weird things from time to time. But hopefully they're usually purposeful. You are clearly a doer. You're a person who's going to put one step in front of the other. Whatever it is, we're going to put our hands on something. We're going to start and we're going to start the doing. There's kind of this concept out there that I've heard a couple of times that you can't be a visionary and a doer. And to me, everybody has the ability to be both. I know exactly. I wanted to get your thoughts on that because that is kind of a popular, you know, these, these things come and go. Uh, but it's that the visionaries sit back and have the big ideas and, and they leave it to the others to be the doing. And to me, I think that exactly what you've demonstrated in just a few of the projects you've discussed is your vision and do simultaneously. One of the things that I did as an employer was a very unusual interview process. Surprise! Uh, But I would not hire a designer that was strictly in the computer if they couldn't connect to themselves with their hand and draw something. So I would give everybody an assignment, but they have to do it with their hand. And if they didn't paint for themselves or have some creative outlet for themselves, I wouldn't hire them because they don't understand the process. And the thing that was important for me, if you don't understand everyone's process or what it takes to get something done, nothing will get done. You have to understand what the artist does. And if you don't know how something's done, how are you going to see it to the finish line? Yeah, I I agree. I think that in our industry in particular, it's a big misnomer. There's people that are segregated and thinking they're visionaries. And then there's people that can only do operations or they can only do this or that. Whereas my thought process has always been, you need to be able to see the bigger picture. You need to be able to be creative and inventive because otherwise you can't progress your operation. You can't progress your business. You have to make them feel like they're complicit and part of a team. And one of the things that I feel is, you know, people say, oh, dress up for Halloween. Well, That wasn't my gig. Mine was, we're going to have a theme and you're going to adhere to it. And the first one I ever did was, come as your favorite disease. (laughs) And oddly enough, the most pretentious person in the office came in a ball gown and a tiara. And I said, what's your disease? And she said, delusions of grandeur. (laughs) (laughs) And we had salmonella. You know, they had to put some thought into it. They had to put themselves in it. It wasn't just go to the discount Halloween store, grab a witch's hat and show up. We had come as your favorite cocktail, come as your favorite piece of furniture. The one who won that one did get a costume of a fish, but then he put a basketball net on his head as like a headpiece. And he was a baby bass in net. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well done well done but it was clever there's some person that i met 
that helped inform this. I did an animation film festival with high schools and I got Pixar to be complicit with me because the theater was in Emeryville, which is where they're headquartered. The guy at Pixar was fascinating and he moved on to create DreamWorks U and now Apple U. And mm. what he did at DreamWorks was he said, you know what's wrong with this company? Everybody thinks that the other guys got the better job. Like the bookkeeping people think, that the writers have all the fun or whatever. So in order to level the playing field, everybody has to do another person's job for two weeks. So they understand what their pressures are. And then everybody has to take a yoga class at like 10 o'clock. So there were bookkeepers editing scripts and administrative assistants acting and so on and so forth. So everybody felt like, Boy, the accounting department's not somebody that I hate. I totally understand why they're cranky all the time <laughs> and so on and so forth. And because he did it at DreamWorks and did it so effectively, and it really brought all of these challenges and job descriptions together as a family. If your business has anything to do with creativity, you need to share that with all of your employees. They need to get a taste of it so that they feel like they're part of something bigger. They're not just back in the accounting department counting beans. And they know people, they know writers, they know actors, they know agents, they know the whole ecosystem of the company that they work for. So I felt like that was one of the things that kind of got me into doing these crazy Halloween parties is this was a way on common ground for everybody to get together and you couldn't not participate. It wasn't allowed when people were grousing. And then once they did it, they loved it because they were somebody else for a day. Yeah. So. Brilliant. That's brilliant, Norma Lynn. Hey, we are, we are running up on our time here, believe it or not. And I think we could continue to talk with you forever. Um, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to reach out. Rachel, what are your big takeaways from the conversation with Norma Lynn today? Mm, there are so many, but I think the importance of nonsense, but also keeping your eye on the bubble and just going for it. Yeah. Please <laughs> How about you, Leslie? I think it, I, I'm going back to that capacity. Normal, and you've just demonstrated for us that we could all just say, oh, it's so much and I've got to take a rest and I need to just think or ponder on something a little bit too many. And you have a mentality, which is what I call not rear view mirror, but windshield mentality, like <laughs> just keep move, just go, whatever it is, just keep, keep picking up things and putting it in your basket. And that's what creates some really fantastic things. And you have demonstrated for us that capacity has no limits, really. You never know what you can do unless you try to do everything. You do everything. And all of a sudden you go, how did that happen? <laughs> you will surprise yourself. So yeah. Thank you for having me. It made me feel happy. Have a wonderful week. And uh, thank you for listening. Oh, you're brilliant as always. Thank you. Bye. Bye.